Katie and I started Moose Talk uh, with the goal in mind to highlight the life's routines and wellness practices of everyday high performers, those individuals who otherwise wouldn't be highlighted on any sort of platform, but who are pouring themselves and their passion into their hobbies, their professions, and potentially even hobbies that they have turned into professions. It's our goal through this podcast to bring a greater sense of awareness to the lives of these individuals, to discuss what has allowed them to be so successful, and to understand what truly makes them tick. On this week's episode of Moose Talk, JD and I have a discussion on the topic of entrepreneurship. In particular, uh, we have a great conversation about the idea of over-sensationalizing the entrepreneur's journey. Uh, We've both observed that in talking to individuals that are currently in the process of building or have built successful small businesses, um, they tend to um, exaggerate and sensationalize some of the challenges that they faced, all in good faith to encourage people to start their own businesses. But what we've observed is that sometimes this, this has the opposite effect and can be a bit discouraging. We also have Jason McCarthy on as our first guest. He is the founder and CEO of GoRuck. Uh, We have a great conversation with Jason. We we get into some current events. We discuss challenges that he has faced as a small business owner, both in starting the business as well as running the business, um, and challenges that he currently faces today, including uh, many different difficult decisions that he's had to make as a small business owner. Uh, We also talk to Jason about what motivates him to not just be comfortable with the current status and the current size of his business, but to continue to be motivated to grow his business um, and impact the lives of many more individuals. Um, So sit back, enjoy, let's do it. Welcome to episode two of the Moose Talk podcast. JD Dolan joined by Matt Musavi and here, the co-founders of Moosefit. Uh, thanks a lot for everyone that listened to our first episode. Uh, thought it was a really good opportunity to give you guys some good background on both of our stories as well as Moosefit, um, how it came to be. Uh, as we kind of progress through the rest of these podcasts, obviously we'll have guests on. We have a, a great guest today. There's been a few little tips and, and heads up on social media, but our guest that we'll be talking to today is Jason McCarthy, the founder and CEO of GoRuck. Um, a lot of great conversation that we have with him, uh, so be sure to stay through the rest of this podcast and make sure you listen to the conversation that we have with him. But um, as we progress, each episode is going to have a, a theme of sorts, and the theme of, of this first episode, um, going with the theme, is going to be entrepreneurship. A um, lot of different conversations that we can have around entrepreneurship, obviously. JD started his own his own company um, and even has had an entrepreneurial spirit from a very young age. Uh, together, we've started Moosefit, so uh, a plethora of, of different conversations that we can have about entrepreneurship. But what we wanted to get into today before we um, talk to Jason 
is the concept of over sensationalizing and you guys will probably hear me screw that word up probably five times throughout this podcast as I try to say it but over sensationalizing the entrepreneurial story um, when I first started working out of school I was working for a, a large company and um, I had the fortune of working for a c-suite executive the chief medical officer so Part of when I first started was being introduced to and, and just meeting a lot of, of her peers. So a lot of um, executive level, C-suite level individuals at a very large company. And um, I'm always a bit of a, a skeptic. It's just kind of the way that I am. Uh, and when I would ask questions to these people about where they got, how they've gotten to where they are today, what about them has enabled them to be so successful, um, I would leave the conversation and I would immediately start to think like, Come on, is that is that actually is all of that actually true? Um, were you actually eating ramen noodles, twelve meals throughout the week, and um, skipping meals because you didn't have enough money? Um, who knows? Who knows what's true and what isn't true? But that skepticism was really driven home to me when I was reading the book Ego Is the Enemy, um, and I know JD's read that book as well. And and Ryan Holiday mentions a, a portion in that book where he starts to talk about how it's a very common thing for people to over sensationalize their stories to make it seem like their path and their success path has been much more difficult than it maybe has been. Um, and I think you can look at this two ways. I think you can say they're lying about their or over sensationalizing their story, or you can approach it from their perspective and just be very straightforward about things so that people who are, trying to replicate that path or trying to use things from that individual's path can truly garner something from that conversation. Hearing someone say that they slept on someone's couch for three months when you're talking to somebody who has grown up and had a lot of opportunities to do well with themselves maybe doesn't give them the best advice that they are looking for at that time. Rather, potentially it's a conversation around um, just what about them has allowed them to work as hard as they needed to, to get to the point that they are. And a lot of times those conversations get to that point. Um, but, uh, curious JD to see any conversations or just concepts around this over sensationalization of entrepreneurial stories in particular. I know you've come across a lot of entrepreneurs just through the, the LDR business that you started, but anyone really in general, obviously not mentioning any specifics, um, that has this concept has kind of resonated with you a little bit. Yeah, I want to. I mean, starting off, this is it just occurred to me when you said, um, you know, sitting in rooms and listening to various executives tell stories about these um, experiences they had and wondering how true they are. Um, it, it dawned on me. So, my, my father and mother actually were, were entrepreneurs and, and started an antique business um, 15 years before I was born. And, long story short, when they ended up uh, my, you know, my dad discovered financial planning um, and said, told my mom, called her one day and said, you know, I want to go to this conference in Florida. They were living in Pennsylvania at the time and said, I want to give this a shot. And they'd never heard of financial planning. It was a totally different industry. They were in um, antiques um, in small town Pennsylvania. And my mom said, let's do it. Um, and they literally moved into a, um, you know, a one, a one bedroom apartment um, in the D.C. area in order to provide my dad with an opportunity to try this new career out. Um, and this was a few years before I was born. But I never got that story um, until years later. You know, I was probably um, in my 20s or, or 30s before I was hearing. And my mom was the one telling my story, not, not my dad telling the story about how, you know, he was working these incredible hours and, um, you know, eating 
food that we probably wouldn't even touch today. Um, but the, the story that my, my dad told is all about, you know, what it did for him and for our family. And um, so it's interesting. That's the, the reverse, right? Um, the opposite of sensationalizing the entrepreneurship journey, um, which is really interesting to reflect on. And then certainly for me, reflecting on, on ours, I can find myself all the time comparing our story to other entrepreneurs out there that are in, um, you know, various publications. And even we have a tendency to say, like, identify the two or three things that were super hard and highlight those as being, um, you know, indicative of our journey when in yeah. fact they may have been the exceptions, right? They may have been just a few outliers that absolutely sucked. Yeah, yeah. Weren't evidence of the whole fact. And I think it's it's really easy to give into this, even outside of entrepreneurship, but really just telling any story that you're retelling about yourself. We want to come off to people as um, and not downplaying any hard work that may have gone into anything, but it's always more fun to kind of tell a story that involves a bit of exaggeration. But uh, I think this really can be detrimental when we're talking about entrepreneurship because, um, and this is a conversation that we were having this weekend when we were celebrating Grace's birthday. Um, it's, it's really, I shouldn't say it's easy, but the hardest part about becoming an entrepreneur and starting something of your own is um, telling yourself that that's who you are and that's what you mm -hmm. can be. Making the jump from your nine to five job and saying, I'm not crazy about this nine to five job. Sure, it's paying the bills. There's something else that I'm a lot better at, but it's it's a scary leap to go from that nine to five comfortable job to uh, questioning where your income is gonna come For from. Sure. Um, and I think, People that over sensationalize their entrepreneurship story make people think that in order to go from that nine to five job to becoming a even remotely successful entrepreneur is going to take this year, whatever it might be, based on stories they've heard of living a miserable life, which oftentimes really isn't the case. And most likely because what you end up doing instead of that comfortable nine to five is something that you really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that you really enjoy that much, a, it'll be fulfilling to you, and B, you'll find a way to make money. So I think rather than over-sensationalizing things, by doing that, you can potentially discourage some people from making that jump into um, becoming an entrepreneur and starting their own thing. I think those conversations should be a bit more realistic with people and saying, like, this is the, the, the benefit of doing your own thing. You'll be fulfilled in what you're doing. But here's also the, the drawback. There is some risk. You won't be able to... Um, go out to dinner as often. You may not have right. as, as much disposable income. And I think those are the conversations that, that really should exist. I've had the fortune of being up to this point, I'm still relatively young in my professional journey, of having to, the chance to talk to a lot of different people about these things. Um, and again, obviously there's, there's many pros and cons of being a skeptic, but one of the, the pros of being a skeptic is being able to take these, this information that I received from successful people and say, what about that can I apply to my own story and my own success? I don't want to be eating canned baked beans. Mm -hmm. Katie doesn't want to be eating canned baked beans with me. We enjoy doing things that require certain necessities, one of which is, is money. Um, so understanding the way that there's a, a transition that can occur between something comfortable uh, and something potentially risky, but knowing that that middle area doesn't have to be sleeping on someone's couch or living out of your car or eating ramen noodles. Um, so I think maybe JD, it might be helpful for me as well as the audience. If you can just quickly touch on kind of what, 
that transition was for you. Obviously, there were a lot of transitionings happening in your life, transitioning from active duty to civilian life, transitioning from business school into to starting your own company. So maybe if you can talk about that a little bit and talk about where that gray area had potential to exist, where you're like, well, if I do this, maybe I won't be as comfortable, but I'll be fulfilling myself mm-hmm. a bit more because I'm doing something that I enjoy. Yeah, and I think it, I was just going to ask you the same question about that transition point, almost how do you operate in that gray and when do you make the jump, when do you make the leap into something that you love doing um, and then what are you giving up by doing so? And I, I think, um, I mean, I was fortunate because when we when we made the transition, and it was a long transition, three of us co-founded the business, two of us were in graduate school, um, Lauren was in law school, I was in business school and Rich decided, um, you know, we've been doing this, I would say as a, a side hustle, although I hate that term, this idea of being active duty army officers and exploring, you know, another life passion that we were doing on the side and it involved originally writing a book and then trying to explore some, uh, this entrepreneurial path. And what we realized is, and, and this, you know, credit goes to Rich for this. He said, look, unless we dive in, we're never really going to know if this can be successful. And truth was we had some profitable months and some not profitable months. So we really didn't know if this was going to work. Um, so my transition point is a lot different than Rich's. I mean, if we had Rich Rich on this one and asked him what was it like, I mean, he was going from the special operations community to, you know, driving a 15-year-old Jeep Wrangler with all of his life's belongings across the country to Casper to move in with a buddy and see if we could pull off, um, you know, the unthinkable. And that's his. that was his journey. My journey was, was a lot easier. Um, so I was transitioning. He was doing that. I was in business school, still getting um, pay for teaching Army ROTC. And I was watching this unfold. And we had a client at the time before I transitioned and made the same leap. Um, certainly was nothing like what it is today. But when I when I think about that, the gray area, yes, I was transitioning from you know a very uh, sustainable um, career path, um, great benefits, a great apartment in New York City, you know, really everything that I could I could ask for, to something where there was relatively little security, but we did have a client. Um, and yeah, we were living in a friend's house trying, trying to build this business, but we were, you know, building it together with some income. And so I don't know that that was truly get out there and see if we can generate a dollar. It was really, we've got a dollar, we've got some money coming in. Let's see if we can scale. Uh, and that was our path, which again, I I think is in some ways similar to what you've experienced. Yeah. You know, for me, um, and and again, this is, this is my story. So pretending, um, talking to somebody who, who may be seeking my advice. Maybe some of you listening are listening because you're, you're curious about our perspective. I hope that's the case. But um, I was extremely strategic about it. Um, I came out of school. Uh, I graduated from Georgetown. A lot of my friends were um, and still are working, working in finance. So in my mind, having a job that met your needs and was able to provide for you financially was really the only option. Um, growing up, entrepreneurship wasn't a huge thing that was conveyed to me. Um, I, I wanted to become a doctor, and I really knew um, a few career paths that existed growing up. Doctor, lawyer, um, the, the major ones, sales, whatever it might be. Um, so coming out of school, I was a bit reserved, potentially to my detriment, about making the jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worked a, worked a nine-to-five. Um, when I started working remotely in, in Washington, D.C., I started coaching classes on the side and it truly was a side hustle. I didn't really see any entrepreneurial potential out of that. Um, but then I had a couple of people come up to me and say, Hey, can you uh, help program for this, this, or this? 
I really enjoyed programming. I did it for the gym that, that I was working at while still working my nine to five. And I, I took this on because I had time and I, I wanted to see people truly improve. Um, I kept working that nine to five that was making good money. Um, as I continued to build out this following of sorts of people that were looking for programming. Um, at the time, it, it in no way was an actual business. Um, but I was very strategic about that gray area. There was overlap that existed. And as one started to grow, so as Moosefit started to grow, I started to pull away from my job a bit more. Um, and funny enough, I think this is the only way that I could potentially even sensationalize my path up to this point. Um, I lost two jobs from the day, from the start of my profession, none of which were really in my control. Um, the chief medical officer at the company that I worked for, the position was eliminated from the company, so my position was eliminated as well. I started working for a, a government services group within a larger company. The group as a whole was eliminated from the company. They felt it wasn't a, a great investment to make, so um, my position was eliminated as well. So those two opportunities I felt were signs from whoever or whatever you might believe in. For me, it is it is God um, that I should potentially be looking at something else. Um, maybe this isn't the direction that I really should be heading, especially as things with what is now Moosefit were, were growing and people were, um, were so attracted to the services that we were offering. But at no point in time was I ever um, feeling hard times or anything like that. I was either working a nine to five while also doing this or really trying to grow Moosefit as much as possible. And Moosefit's now at the point where it really serves as its own business and, and is able to, to um, provide for me the way that I would like it to, um, which is great, but a very different story from a lot of people. Rich, like the story you told, and a, even different from your story as well, where um, there really was that kind of breaking point. For right. me, it was much more of a transition. And if you are someone that you're able to make that happen, I think it's, it's a great way to go about it. But I've had a number of conversations with, with JD, with Rich, um, even most recently as this past weekend where, and, and I am a firm believer in it, but um, it's a weakness of mine and it's something that I'm trying to get over. If you're going to do anything, do it 100%. Otherwise, it won't be as successful as it could potentially be. Um, so for me, that's something that I'm continuing to work on. It's something that has been stressed to me over and over again, and I firmly believe in it. But for me, uh, it was and still is hard to 100% completely fully make the jump into just pursuing one thing. Mm -hmm. um, because I do think that there are things in the other aspects of my life that are sharpening tools of mine that I am currently using and will use in the future to grow Moosefit even past the point that it is right now. Um, I, I definitely believe everything that you do should be um, an attempt to make a step to grow what your ultimate end goal is. And my ultimate end goal, as is JD's with Moosefit, is to impact as many people's lives as possible. So the way that I view some of the other aspects of my professional life up to this point are uh, ways to sharpen my tools mm -hmm. to grow Moosefit and make it an even stronger company. Yeah, contributing, yeah. contributing factors that may help me get there. Yeah. So when, if it's not about sensationalizing, I mean, how would you, how would you describe what the path has been, particularly in the gray? I mean, some people would describe it as a grind. Some people would describe it as something that, um, they can't stop thinking about that drives them towards this. Yeah. Where, you know, for me, I guess the hardest part about that, uh, 
the gray for me, and I guess the way I would describe the gray is the point in time where work was, my, my nine to five was all consuming and mm -hmm. MooseFit had also become so large that it was taking up a lot of my time. That transition point was, and maybe I'm sensationalizing, maybe I'm not, we'll have to meet me in person to find out the truth, but that, that gray area was having to work 14 hour days where I'm fulfilling the needs and, and doing well at my full-time job and also doing well and fulfilling the needs of the MooseFit clients. Um, so I, I would consider that really to be the gray area. Having said that, maybe it's 16 hour days, mm -hmm. maybe it's 10 hour days that would need to be put into MooseFit to continue to grow MooseFit. But um, the, the most challenging time for me was when both aspects of my professional life were extremely demanding. Yeah. Um, having said that, that's kind of the opposite of not having any income coming in, but it still is and, and was a, a, a challenging time because both required a lot of attention. Yeah, and I guess the follow-up to that would be, is there a point in time that you can think of where work in MooseFit, the amount of time you were putting in could be correlated to what you were getting out and it almost became um, like addictive where you were yeah. you saw the progress, you wanted to get more involved? Totally. Um, I think that's a, that's a good question and it's a, I think it'll stem a, another conversation that we can potentially get into um, on another podcast. But uh, for me, I am very attracted to the grind and the grit of working hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that's been instilled in me my, my entire life. Um, it goes back to, to what my grandfather said. If you're going to do something, be the best that you can be at it. So for me, for better or for worse, I've been very much involved in two different professional aspects of my life. And for me, I will do whatever it takes to be the best possible version that I can be at each of those aspects. What percentage one is taking away from the other, it's impossible to say. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, I truly do enjoy absolutely emptying myself into both of those aspects of my life almost to my my personal detriment at times because um, it, it can be exhausting but uh, for me I'm energized by work energized by challenge and, and truly motivated and energized by discipline um, when there's a lot of things going on the more disciplined that you can be and the more uh, routine you can be with your your day and, and with that discipline I think more productive and more successful, at least I, and I think most people can be, um, if that routine and that discipline is something that they, that they truly follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly something that I can relate to. And, yeah. and when I think about the, the choices I made, people ask, um, you know, if you did it all again, what would you change? And there's a lot of things I would change, uh, but I'd never change the choice to, to go all in. Yeah. And, um, you know, you could, you could focus on what were you giving up to do that, I, I mean, I choose to focus on what, what life did it provide me with and, you know, the freedom and flexibility to pursue the things that I believe most strongly in to impact people's lives, as you suggested, is really what we've done. And, and now looking back, you know, founding in 2011, but looking back now on what we've accomplished and it's been a winding path and it's been wrought with peril and challenges and, um, you know, lots of less successful endeavors. Uh, but it's also been, you know, hugely rewarding and overall successful and, and something that I'm incredibly grateful for. So, um, but the sensationalizing, that concept, I think is really powerful today because it's certainly not for everybody. I mean, the entrepreneurship journey is not something that um, I think you do lightly. I don't think it's something, the side hustle has, again, been sensationalized itself as something that, 
well, everyone can just jump on the train and, and give it. I think until you decide you're going to put just as much into that side hustle as you put into your day job, and therefore you're working twice as much as your average person, um, you're not going to see the reward. In fact, it's mm-hmm. just going to, it's really going to draw down on your energy and your, your life and your yeah. health. Um, and I don't see that as a positive thing. But. Yeah. And I think this is an area where JD and I, and we have this conversation all the time, we may disagree slightly at times about this just because um, I think that there is a way to tactfully go about a transition from one to the other. Um, having said that, I don't know the other way, so I can't say how much quicker MooseFit would have been able to grow if I had gone from 100 to zero here and mm-hmm. 50 to 150 here, uh, here being MooseFit. Um, we're at that point now, so I can say it's growing uh, the way that we expected it to because it's receiving the amount of effort and time that it truly deserves. But uh, if that were to have been the case from the beginning, who knows where we'd be today and how much quicker it would have grown getting us either to this point or past this point so uh, it's definitely it's, it's a hard conversation to, to have because hindsight's always 2020 the grass is always greener how many other um, phrases can I throw at this one but um, you'll never know um, you can just listen to the stories that people tell yeah uh, try to apply information from those stories and, and JD's been a, a mentor of mine JD not to, to age him at all but he's a little bit older Old than me man. and a bit a bit more experienced than me when it comes to, to business and, and life and, and um, relationships. So I listen to JD just as much as I listen to anybody else when it comes to these things. But understanding that and being able to verbalize that you slightly disagree with something that someone's saying about their story kind of takes us back to this sensationalization concept where um, hearing what people say and maybe laughing off the joke about them walking uphill both ways home and, and to school um, laughing that off and, and kind of pushing it to the side, really listening to what they're saying about their story and how you can apply that to your own life is is really valuable. Um, and we'll, we'll see a lot of this. We're going to bait uh, Jason, the, the founder and CEO of GoRuck, into potentially sensationalizing his story a little bit. I know he's a, a military guy just like JD, so um, he, he may be a bit inclined to, to sensationalize it. But we're going to have the same conversation with him. Um, started GoRuck really from, not really, from nothing, um, and been able to build it to uh, close to a multi, I mean, a multi-million dollar company, I think, uh, based on the numbers that we were able to find online, close to a $10 million company. So um, excited for the conversation that we're going to have with Jason, and we'll continue to have some of this, this sensationalization conversation with Jason, um, similar to, to what JD and I just talked about. So um, make sure you keep listening for the, the conversation we have with Jason. What's up? What's going on? I wish you were in here. I'm kind of bummed. When Matt first told me, I was I was pretty amped to have you in uh, DC, and then I realized that was probably impossible. Yeah, I'll be there later this year. We got our 10 year anniversary of our first class in DC, but oh, nice. It's not right now. Oh, uh, we definitely have to. We have to get together and do another one of these. Awesome. I'm glad JD initiated in a little bit of foreplay there, Jason. I was gonna, I was, I was gonna give it right to you. <laughs> Joined here by Jason McCarthy, founder and CEO of GoRuck. Um, Jason, uh, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on as our as our first guest here. As we've um, kind of mentioned 
to listeners of the podcast. We're going to cycle through several different topics on the podcast, but uh, the topic that we discussed, JD and I briefly before uh, obviously having this conversation with you is around uh, entrepreneurship. We did plan that. So we, we're not going to lie and say that it was just a coincidence, but we did plan that um, just because of obviously uh, your background. But um, we, we've done a, a decent amount of research. We wanted to make sure that we were prepared coming into this. And uh, we have a, a litany of different questions, some easy, some challenging. Uh, but the first one that I'll pose to you, um, as you... Know, I'm curious if you're going to start out with a softball or you're going to like give me some red meat. Well, <laughs> let, <laughs> let's, let's see here. The, the first question that I have, so I'm going to paint a little bit of a, a picture for you. Um, you're packing your, your book bag. Uh, it's the first day of school in, sorry about that. It's the first day of school in fifth grade. Yeah. It's the first day of school in fifth grade. Um, unlike kids today, you're actually going to a physical location for school. What are you putting your textbook into a Jansport book bag or an LL Bean book bag? Jansport, I think it's because it costs less. My my, the cool kids at the time had the LLB with their their monogrammed, you know, uh, initials on there and stuff. And yeah, but I had a Jansport. You know, it's funny. I always thought the uh, the kids that had LL beans were a little weird. So I guess we, uh, you grew up in Florida, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Ohio. I bounced around a little bit here and there, but but a lot of a lot of time in Florida since uh, like the early nineties. Okay, nice. So I actually grew up in Columbus too, and I wasn't going to get into it until a little bit later. But um, we, <laughs> everyone who's from Ohio, you know, they're from Ohio because they they talk about it. Um, Especially when someone asks them where they're from. <laughs> yeah, it's it's somewhat inevitable. Um, but then again, just from kind of doing some research on you, I, you um, grew up, spent some time in Ohio, moved around a little bit, but ultimately ended up um, at Emory as an undergrad. And I didn't realize, and for those listening, um, Jason's sister, Cassie, is, is good friends of, of uh, JD and I's. So we do know a little bit of the, the family background here to a certain extent. But I didn't realize you played, um, you played tennis at Emory. Um, what was that experience like? Did you enjoy Emory tennis playing a college sport? Yeah, that was great. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to kind of imagine a college experience without playing a sport or sports if, if you did play it. I mean, there, there was just a lot of structure to, to the days there. And so, you know, I, I really liked the team environment. I mean, tennis is kind of an individual sport. I mean, it's just you and your opponent on a tennis court. But the best part of it was just the, the team environment because there were no individual champions. It was it was whatever you did as a team. So that, that was a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, similar experience on uh, JD played sports in college as well and was was ROTC and I played golf, which is a similar experience to the tennis experience in that it really is unless you're playing doubles, of course, with tennis, but it's very much an individual sport, but the team camaraderie still exists. Um, curious if anything about your tennis experience or potentially anything before that um, kind of paved the way to craving that camaraderie a bit. Um, and transitioning you into the, the next step of your life, which to my understanding was um, was the military. And I'll take that one step further and then hand this conversation over to JD uh, to a certain extent. 
I do know, and we're, we're approaching the date here in the next couple of days, um, I do know that, that you were of the group of individuals very inspired by, um, I think inspired may be the right word, but um, inspired by the events of 9-11. So if you could just take us through uh, kind of your, uh, what led you and what inspired you to um, feel the calling to join the military. And I think JD and, and you will go off on a bit of tangent conversation here, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on that first. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not unique or special in that regard. I mean, 9-11 was a, a, a big moment in our country's history. And, you know, it just happened before our very eyes, which was, it was difficult to watch. It was hard to be, it, it was hard to feel like you couldn't make a difference. So I wanted to make a difference. You know, going back, you know, you asked, was there anything that prepared me for that type of stuff? I mean, you know, I'd grown up with a certain physicality. I grew up playing sports. I grew up on sandlots all over the you know wherever I was it was basketball it was tennis it was or football whatever the case may be um so I grew up playing sports I was very comfortable in that type of physical environment training environment which I guess you know to some extent made choosing army infantry less scary although in a time of war it's still pretty scary <laughs> but you know I mean that that had a lot less to do with it than just the emotional response to what 9-11 was. And so, you know, I graduated in May of 2001 from college and eventually enlisted in, in the fall of 2003. So it took a minute there to kind of figure out how and what. And part of the reason was because it was, it was a really crowded space, lots of people. You know, contrary to, to the common belief that people who serve in the military are, you know, can't do anything else right it was the exact opposite and still is the exact opposite it was very competitive to get into these these jobs of service and so it was hard to figure out how to join and, and what that path might be especially because i didn't have a lot of exposure to to what it might mean for my life and my career or how i could best serve frankly i mean i i wanted to be on the front lines and you know you hear special forces or rangers or seals or whatever and you you kind of hope and assume sometimes it's be careful what you, what you wish for, but you hope and assume that that means you'll get to, to serve more, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And so that was the path I had to navigate. So did there, I mean, did any of that come from, um, like family legacy or, I mean, as you, as you were growing up, did thoughts occur to you that, Hey, maybe I'd have a life of service or the military, maybe an option or, um, you know, did, had that crossed, no, I mean, the military just wasn't really a, a thing. I mean, my uncle, my uncle was in the Navy, right? So he flew helicopters in the Navy. My grandfather had been an artillery officer in Korea, but barely, if ever, talked about his experience. It, you know, it just kind of, it, there was, there was a ton of respect for the military, mm -hmm. but it was not, you know, it just wasn't something that was family business, so to say. And, and, you know, I mean, one of my regrets, which is hard to call it a regret because it's born of ignorance, right. Was, you know, I think I would have done really well at a service Academy and I just didn't really understand that process at all. And I was, I was, when I was 18, I mean, I, I wanted to push myself harder. I just didn't know how I wanted the structure of what that, type of life represents I, I just didn't really you know they're like oh you got to get someone in congress to write you a letter of recommendation i'm like how the hell do you do that <laughs> you know i mean these are the problems that are not hard to solve 
it's especially not hard for me now to like well you call the congressman's office right and, right. and you do stuff like that now google wasn't a thing and all of that stuff you know so it's it's just it, it just didn't really it was easy to kind of dismiss it through almost by accident you know mm-hmm. like oh this is this is not really a thing so i'll, I'll go to i'll go to a, a normal quote normal college right and so, yeah, it just—it really was was that moment though of of nine eleven that that inspired me. So, you, I think each of us remember, you know, what we were doing when we first heard, and you know what the experience was like over the next few days. And and one of the things that you said around, you know, wanting to be able to make a difference. I mean, my the most vivid memory I have of the experience was I heard about I had a, I had a cell phone. I was. Um, um, in high school and I had a cell phone at the time and my dad was calling and calling and calling in the middle of class and I knew that there was something that was going on so I was actually one of the first people um, in the class to hear about it and I went to this tiny private school and we didn't have TV so all of us crowded around inside the one of the administrators offices to see to see what was going on but the first feeling that I recall is this feeling of helplessness like there was absolutely nothing I could do and I was watching as you know, I'll say the world was crumbling, but it was our country, you know, this, this country. So um, my dad was in the military um, many years before I was born. But like you, I, I was raised in a patriotic household, so I believed in service. I knew I wanted to be in the military, which maybe is a, is a small distinction. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do until September 11th when, um, like for me, that meant I wanted to be at the tip of the spear. And we heard the stories of the Rangers, um, you know, that were they utilized as a show of force. Um, but you know, they were the first uniformed soldiers and certainly not the first, the first in, um, as I'm sure you'll remind me. Um, but that, that feeling for me was, um, you know, one I'll never forget. And I think that was the distinguishing point. I knew since I was, uh, probably self-aware that I was going to be in the military, didn't know what role I'd play. Um, and then it was September 11th. I knew never again, do I want to feel this sense of helplessness? Like there's nothing I can do about the outcome in our country. Uh, and that was the path, at least for me. And it sounds like it's it was pretty similar to yours. Yeah, I mean, it was just kind of took all your foundations and shattered them a bit. Yeah. So you, uh, we'll paint the picture. You you are now in the military. I was uh, reading some things online. I think it was a, a, a blog post up on, uh, I believe it was GoRuck's website. And there were a couple of things that uh, were either quoted from you or uh, pieces that you had pulled and quoted from other sources. And one of them uh, really struck me, and I've, I've heard it before, so uh, if you claim to, to have come up with this, I'm not sure if, if you have, but, uh, and maybe I'm just so off base that I just don't know where it really came from. But uh, when you were in the military, when did it become instilled, the, the phrase, to lead is to serve? When did that really become instilled in you? No, I didn't actually hear that until after I was out of the military. Okay. There was one, another one of our cadre who said it at one of our events, and we put it in a we put it in a video. So that was a shout out to, to Dan Plants, now uh, CSM at Third Special Forces Group, and one of my dear dear friends. And so that just kind of made sense to me. I mean, it, I never heard it so succinctly put, but it it's kind of always the vibe, right? I mean, people have this, this misperception that if you outrank someone in the military, you just tell them what to do and they do it. And there are times where that does happen. 
especially by really ineffective leaders who yeah. can't figure out a way to, to, to bring the team and to actually lead the team. So they have to kind of resort to rank and all of these kinds of kinds of things. So it's not, the military is not exactly what I would call a touchy-feely organization, but at the same time, it's it's built upon respect. Like that's ultimately what what happens is is when you respect someone. But you know, on on my team, it was twelve guys, right? And you know, there were some beards, and then there was some shaved shaved faces, and then there was more beards. And sometimes we had uniforms on, and sometimes we didn't. And we all called each other by our first names. Our, our captain was well. Our team sergeant was Bobby. You know, I mean, and these are guys that like they outranked me by like a million levels, right? But it's well Bobby. And there was absolutely zero lack of clarity on who was in charge at, at any one time. And yet I, I respected them. I respected them as, as teammates and as leaders. And so they were, they were in essence serving me with their experience, with their kind of vision for how we were going to accomplish our, our mission. And so that's one of those things that it's it, it becomes absolutely clear in hindsight when you've been around different kinds of leaders throughout your career and you see how it works better and, and how it works a little less good and so yeah to, to lead is definitely to serve yeah and then another thing i saw as i was just reading through some things and i think this goes back to the conversation you were just having about um some of the leaders that you experienced firsthand in your military time but um what you said or what the, what the quote was is uh, you were kind of busting your ass working extremely hard uh, just to be average. And that was a feeling that you felt during your time in the military. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, what inspired you to really uh, verbalize that and how that's carried over into some of the other aspects of your life outside of the military? Yeah. I mean, I think there's this, this, idea of humility right and people throw around words and talk about how important humility is or sometimes it's a different word and it's a different story but i think sometimes it's it's equally if not more important to, to give some context to what that means right and so if you surround yourself with you know do nothings and you're the king of the do nothings i mean great congratulations right but if, if you keep surrounding yourself with, with great people who want to just go and get after it and are constantly pushing this, this relentless pursuit of excellence, I mean, the tip of the spear sharpens every single day. And it's, it's keep up, keep up, drive the, the sharpening or, or be gone. And, yeah. and that's, that's just because it is a life or death organization mm -hmm. with people who take that very seriously. And so, you know, yeah, it's a ton of fun too, you know, but, but at the same time, it's like, you have to have that kind of humility to know that you're not, you're not, this is, first off, it's not about you. It's about the mission. And second off, if you think you're so great like I, I know a million dudes that did more stuff than than me, and and than anybody who's going to present themselves to me and, and tell me how great they are. And oh, by the way, the ones that never present themselves as the sort of peacocks of of colors, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, look at me, I'm awesome. Yeah. The ones that never do that are the ones that have done 
the absolute most because they're the ones who, who find the most zen in life and they don't need to go brag about it. It's just kind of how it works. So, you know, that's a, that's a great community to sort of grow up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard it uh, phrased a, a different way, uh, but never extrapolated beyond the, the phrase. And the way I've heard it is A's surround themselves with A's and, and C's surround themselves with C's so that everyone who's a C feels better about themselves for, for being a C. And I think that's kind of a, a similar way to, um, similar approach, but I, I do really like the, uh, the sharpening of the, the spear um, analogy there. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting to hear you say that, and it, and it reminds me of, um, I mean, it's one of my first distinct, I would say, combat memories in, in Ranger Battalion. Certainly wasn't my first experience there. But I came from a light, light infantry unit that had deployed, um, you know, and I would consider the unit to be an exceptional uh, light infantry unit, um, and that was 431. But we did predominantly daytime operations, and I got to Ranger Battalion, and we did our train-up, and um, but the first distinct memory I have of really being in a combat zone with a, with a Ranger Strike Force, Ranger Platoon, um, I was actually, I was serving as an opso, so traditionally I was up... Um, during the day doing collection. And then I would report to the strike force commander who, who was the platoon leader at the time. And he would go out and execute with his platoon, but they knew that I was gonna be taking over that platoon during the next uh, cycle. So on a couple of occasions, uh, the ground force commander said, why don't you come out with the team and, and start to get to know the platoon and how they operate and be familiar with the calls and et cetera. So, um, you know, it was a really unbelievable learning experience for me because I was, for all intents and purposes, just attached to the PL with no primary role or responsibility other than making sure I was staying out of the way and learning as much as I could um, and obviously engaging where appropriate. And my first distinct memory was so clear because we landed, um, it was a, I think it was a 5K offset. Um, and of course, we're landing in the middle of the night. All of our operations traditionally are, are at night. And we landed and for me again familiar with nods have been through training with them had used them in combat but they had not become you know a part of my body so to speak and we landed and right after the the birds lifted off the platoon started moving and you know i'm used to when you're under nods at night it's you know it is not the same depth of perception is reduced um even with sixes you're just not as not quite as comfortable as you would be I looked around me and there's 60 guys on the ground that are moving like it's broad daylight. And I truly felt like a C operating in an A world. And it was such, I mean, it totally put things in perspective. Like you were in a different environment with a different team on a different level, rise to the occasion. Like you need to figure this out and figure it out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, for me, that was one of these cases where, you know, I consider myself pretty fit and pretty competent. And I was definitely brought down a few levels uh, night one. Yeah, the world, if you've ever seen those National Geographic shows, right, where it shows the lions hunt the zebras, you know, and it's, it's kind of like the world works where the world is actually the lion, right, mm. and you're, you're the pack of zebras, and if you're the slowest, you, the lion is going to get you. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just sort of, you know, so if you don't figure that out, you know what happens? You go back after that mission, and they're like, this dude sucks. And then guess what happens? You don't go out on any That's missions. Right. <laughs> Pretty simple, really. Right. <laughs> in, uh, in starting to tell the, the analogy that you use there, um, kind of about the, the A's and the C's are sharpening the spear, you, 
You mentioned a term uh, humility or terms similar to humility. The conversation that JD and I were having prior to jumping on uh, on the phone with you here is um, around the concept, and it's focused on entrepreneurship, but around the concept of over-sensationalizing the entrepreneurial journey. Um, and I can tell already it was kind of our plan to maybe bait you into over-sensationalizing your story and, and go ruck story a bit, but I don't think we'll be able to do that. Uh, but the conversation really was around um, the, the sense of humility that it takes to uh, help people that are interested in learning about your story and learning about how they can become uh, successful entrepreneurs, how it takes a sense of humility to truly tell the, the proper story rather than sensationalizing things. So um, I'll, I'll use that as a preface to um, hand it over to you to talk, uh, if you could, just about kind of the, the initial idea of uh, GoRuck and, and the rucksack itself that has obviously been um, commercialized by, by GoRuck and just through some research. And this is where I think uh, hopefully it's not sensationalized because it is a good story, but um, the story about you and Emily in, in, I believe it was West Africa and you really just out of utility building her something that could be used to really protect her belongings. You want to go into that a little bit more and then maybe talk about how that has, uh, how that was able to transition into eventually what it sounds like was a hobby at first. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I think my, my biggest objection is when people paint things out to be, I mean, if you paint things out to be what they were not, then you're just a liar. Mm -hmm. and that's not all that, that's not all that interesting to me either because to, to, I don't trust anything else you'll ever say. But the, the, the part that's not, like there are, there are sins of omission and there are sins of commission, right? Like things, sins that you make by doing something wrong and sins that you make by not doing anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that just as kind of a, a construct for this is lots of times when people tell or share their stories, go look at the Instagram feeds all over the world, right? Sure. People share, they put their best foot forward. It's, it's a defense mechanism mm -hmm. to say, look, I'm doing great, you know, like, isn't this awesome? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's not a sin, it's, it's okay, right? But what it's not, it's not a complete picture. And in aggregate, what happens is, is you've got too many people out there who are looking at these experiences thinking, oh, well, my life's not that easy or my life wasn't that perfect or this is a lot harder. And, you know, and that becomes very, I'm 41, man. Like I've, I've been around the block a little bit. I've been to war and back. I've been in special forces, right? Like I'm, I got armadillo skin at this point, but I can remember back in life to when I didn't. And, and those are, those are really challenging and difficult times. And America's youth, the younger you are, it's harder. You get armadillo skin over time, right? And, and, we're doing our youth, the people that we need to lead this country into the future, a huge disservice by only presenting them our, our perfect veneers of, of life. And so the, the early days of Gora were, this is not some hero's journey where I had this plan and I was a cyborg and I just executed on every day and it's perfect. 
and now look at me. Like, that's that's just a... It's 12 it, o'clock. I, first off, my, my contention is, is that never exists, even when you hear it, right? Oh, you know, I, I couldn't find a shirt, so... I, you know, right, yeah. I, I couldn't find a shirt, so I had to come up with my own company to find a shirt. It's like, oh shit, man, there's a tailor. Wherever you live, there's a tailor on the internet. You can take your, your measurements. You can have a shirt in 15 days that's custom built for you. Like, don't, don't give me this thing about you couldn't find a, a good enough shirt, okay? Right. So for, for us, it just started out as... I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, to join the CIA. M was in the CIA, you know, while I was in special forces, she was living in West Africa. I went and visited her after my, after my trip to, to Iraq in 2007 and built her a go bag or a go rug, which is essentially what we would take out on missions with us. You put extra supplies in the trunk of the Humvee, yeah. extra bombs, extra batteries, extra guns, extra whatever. Right, radio equipment, stuff that you have just in case the, the mission is extended and say your vehicle's disabled, you have to fight, take your pick, right? It's contingency planning. And so I did that, adapted some of the principles, but but built that for her in, in Africa, put it in the trunk of her Toyota Prado, which is their what they call a, a land cruiser, right? Had another one at the house. Just because they love a good coup in Africa, right? I mean, this was a, it's not a war zone, but it's, it's arguably in some ways, some of the time more dangerous because it's, if you go to war with your buddies and your gun trucks, you know what you're getting into yeah. here. It's, it's not like that. And so it's just kind of, uh, you just don't know when they're going to RPGs are just going to show up in the middle of the street. Right. So had one go back for her in, in her, her back of her truck. One at the house, built another couple for other people at the embassy. And we're just trying to figure out something to do because I was going to move there later the next year. And she's like, oh, you should do the go-rep thing. And basically what that meant was, you know, not just build go-bags for people, but, but kind of teach people the special forces way of life to people at the embassy or to some of the wealthier people in town. Because there's plenty of people with with that are looking for security enhancements all over the world. So it was meant to be kind of a soft landing. And uh, in some ways it was. In, in other ways, those initial plans just didn't work out at all because our, our personal life started into the, the, the crash and burn phase of, of, of all of that. So there was a there was still a ways to go after the, the initial idea. Yeah, awesome. Um, and and you, you, mentioned, you mentioned Emily in that story. Uh, this will be a little bit of a segue into another shared aspect of, of my life, your life, as well as Emily's. Um, Emily, it, to my understanding, and I, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but ran track at Georgetown. Um, I went to Georgetown as an undergrad, and, and you got your MBA at Georgetown. So I think a, an important question for the audience to really understand. Um, if you and Emily were to race with a, let's call it a 10-pound rucksack on your back, uh, let's call it an 800 meter race. Who would win? Emily. What distance would it take for you to beat Emily? How much weight are we talking? 10 pounds. Probably never. Okay. So I, I knew Emily I mean, was... 10 pounds is not reality. I mean, that, that's running, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like you, you, you ate too big of a lunch and drank a little too much water. <laughs> if you want to start to say, you know, if you start to get into... To, to anything approaching, you know, 
more like 45 pounds dry type sure. stuff. Now you're starting to get in my sweet spot. Yeah. Um, so going into the, that Georgetown shared experience a little bit, um, I know a few people that have gotten their MBAs at Georgetown and, and MBAs in general, JD got his MBA um, as well. Curious to hear, first of all, um, obviously there are things that you took away from your experience getting your MBA at Georgetown or getting an MBA in general. Um, would you, do you feel that you took more value in some of the relationships that you established at Georgetown or the kind of hard skills that you may have actually learned in getting your MBA? My, my, I don't think I'm a person to answer that in kind of the either or way, mm -hmm. because the, the greatest value that I got out of Georgetown was just the support that the institution, both of professors and students and literally the institution showed me in, in the early days of transitioning as a veteran and, and then just their support for, for GORUCK as this idea that I had that had no legs at the time, literally. So, you know, it, it was more like my life was kind of just a little bit above rock bottom and Georgetown was the first step in, in first major step in, in that direction. The first step was, was literally my dog, but the Georgetown was the first major step of kind of recovering my, my life back. And by my life, I mean sort of who I am. And, and so, you know, I, I wouldn't call business school uh, a real technical school. Like you do learn things, but I, I don't think that most people leave and say, Oh, you know, I learned so many hard skills in, in business school. And, and for me, I was, I was spread pretty thin in terms of time. So I also was not, you know, the world's greatest networker. I didn't cast a huge net. I, I made some really, really good friends of people that I'm still very much in touch with to this day. And so that's been rewarding on a, on a personal level. Uh, but, you know, I think overall it was just, it, it was a perfect fit for me at the time because I was incubating this idea for GORUCK and it was just a platform that supported me damn near unconditionally. And, and that's rare in this world. And so, yeah, I had to take some steps, you know, they weren't just serving it up, mm -hmm. but it was just, the, the institution was just hugely supportive and I, I will always be grateful. Yeah, that's a, it's not the first time I've heard that um, it sounds to me like you're suggesting you're, you got a lot more out of it because you were incubating at the same time. You had a vision, you had a passion for something that you wanted to build, and the community, the environment, the people, they were all, you know, theoretic stakeholders, contributors to that, um, you know, process you were going through. And I think when I think about my experience in business school, it's very similar. Um, and having conversations with people who weren't building a business or weren't contributing, in a, not to say they weren't contributing in a meaningful way to some professional uh, endeavor, but if they didn't have something that they were preparing to pour their life into that they could apply to each of these classes, they just perhaps the classes meant less. And then their focus was what is my next career or what network can I develop? What professor connection can I make? Whereas mine was, I think I, I, like you developed some really interesting relationships including you know one with the current business partner and some with professors but what i really got out of it was being able to apply each class to what i was trying to build um 
and that's that's the reason why I would I would do it again, um, you know, in a heartbeat. Uh, it's not for any of those other facets, and it sounds like you had a similar experience at Georgetown. Yeah, I think it, like most things, it's, it's kind of is what you make of it. So if you make more of it, then you get more out, mm-hmm. and it's just you know, there's some personal responsibility there, right? I mean, I, I can't. I can't sit here and poo-poo any of the sort of networking elements of it. I just, sure. that just, that kind of just wasn't me and it wasn't what I could do at that time. I just didn't have, I literally didn't have the time, yeah. right? Trying to start go ruck and traveling a lot on, on that front. I was gone a lot of weekends. And so, you know, it just, that's not how, that's not how, what my calendar looked like. And so I was a lot more kind of in and out and, I mean, my second year, I remember running into someone at some point who's like, wait, what? You're still here? I heard you dropped out. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated type, type answer. But, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, it, it was a whole, it was, you know, it's like, it's not the same as, oh, you go, you know, and you do a, a one-year master's program in, in this thing and you, you leave and you get all of these hard skills. It's, it's not that at all. You don't, like, if you're a doctor, you know, you graduate a doctor and you kind of go through those those paths. Or you get better over time, as with everything. But you graduate business school doesn't mean you're some great businessman now. There is this way of thinking about things that it, it teaches you. But, you know, some of that took a long time to realize. And so I kind of underestimated the actual academic conversations that we had I underestimated their importance but as I started to see them over the the coming years and now now decade it's they were they were also very valuable Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean for people that are listening I think and I know there's no perfect answer but do you think that it's particularly useful for a particular type of person what I mean by that is there's a lot of people that are um you know, interested in the, in the Moosefit story because they have, um, you know, entrepreneurial aspirations, other because they're really interested in wellness, other because it has more to do with professional development and excelling in their own industry uh, and celebrating that. So when you think about, and I'm sure you get the question as often as I do, um, you know, how much of your success do you attribute to business school? How much of LDR's journey can be traced back to the fact that your partners deliberately went to graduate school before coming back into the business? When you think about somebody saying, you know, would you advise that I consider business school? Would, do you think that that's a good option for somebody that's trying to figure out what their next step is? Uh, how would you respond to that? I mean, I think we're in the middle of, I don't think any answer I give will age especially well, mm-hmm. because I think we're in the sure. middle of such a disruptive yeah. period of time in, in education. You know, is, is it about the hard skills that you're going to learn? Is it about the class discussions? How are those going to go, mm-hmm. you know, as, as more sort of transitions to, to online stuff? I mean, it's, I see education being a lot more democratized over time, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the more that we're able to kind of take these barriers, almost goodwill hunting style for, yeah. for the next generation. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm just hugely supportive of that. I, I, I believe in the American dream. And I, and I think that, the more that we can provide education for those who don't have access to it now but want it, the better. And so these kind of strangleholds at the, at the very top of these these kind of universities and, and such, I mean, I, I think it would be cool to, to, to open that up to more people, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. right? Um, so not to devalue a Georgetown degree, but I think Georgetown has to 
add additional value by adapting to the situation at hand. Anyway, long, long kind of winding answer to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know if someone should go to business school or, or law school. I, I do know that you should have a good reason for wanting to do it that will motivate you to, to do it well because the people that were the people that went to business school to kind of pay for a job search, you know, job placement service, those were the people that got the least amount out of out of business school from from my kind of vantage point. Sometimes in the very cheap seats, uh, albeit, but but it was like, why do you want to do this? I mean, I mean, some people maybe they should should go get a master's in finance. Some people maybe you should you should you know. If you want to be an English teacher, go get an English degree, right? I, I don't know. Like, I think people should kind of listen to what they're they're called to do and and do that. So, I don't I don't want to give anybody a hard yes or a hard no. I, I want to push people to kind of listen to what they want to do in life and make sure that that fits in really well with with the plan, and then it's worth it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I'm actually glad that we spent as much time as we did on that topic, selfishly because. Um, I'm someone that's always envisioned myself taking a step into to business school at, at some point, the timing of which I had no idea. So um, hearing both of you guys, I've had conversations with JD about it, but hearing you, Jason, talk about it is just, just valuable input to receive. Um, taking, I think the timing might be a little bit off here, at least in my mind, but taking a step back, I believe, to just before business school and then uh, posing a question that I believe occurred during business school uh, as I was reading through some information on you and Go Ruck's story, I heard two of my uh, kind of red flag over sensationalized terms when it comes to starting businesses. One, an ad on Craigslist and two, sleeping on a buddy's couch. Um, so maybe if you can, um, if you could kind of tell the background, I think the, the Craigslist ad is a pretty cool story. Uh, and then as you progress past the point of really the design of the first Go Ruck bag, um, I noticed from 2010 to 2011, which again, if my timing is right, was in the midst of business school, GORUCK took a massive jump in terms of revenue from 2010 to 2011, nearly uh, 3,000% or just over 2,000% growth. Um, so all of that to ask, if you could just touch on that story, the, the add-on Craigslist, and then maybe speak to what contributed to that massive, massive spike in growth. Yeah, so I mean, I, I literally, I mean, there are two points. I mean, over sensation, like they, they felt pretty real to me. So <laughs> my marriage was at crash and burn in, in West Africa. I got on a plane and like maybe two or three days, something like that, before I left, I sent an email to a buddy who was living on the Lower East Side across the street from, from a cemetery. I think it was on first, between first and second, something like that. And um, I'm like, hey, marriage is in crash and burn can I come stay with you and he's like absolutely so lived on his couch there in this slanted apartment with holes in the in the floor and he had a dog he eventually got a dog and the dog had some gi issues so when the dog would take a shit in the floor it would fill in these little holes on the on the wood floor it was, just, it, was, it, was really it was an interesting time <laughs> um, so so did that basically until just before business school started the, the following what September or August or September and then I moved down to DC so I was there for certainly the better part of a year uh, and you know go rep was kind of a hobby at the time it was something to do the, the problem of course was I knew nothing about manufacturing 
I knew nothing about how to actually build a, a bag. And it started out in, in Africa as filling up old special forces packs that we had, had kind of gotten rid of, right? So the, the, the packs we weren't using anymore, it was like, oh, yeah, I'll take a couple. I'll bring them to Africa with me. I filled those up. Those are the ones that were, were in Africa. And, and so and how do you take a napkin sketch and turn it into reality? Like, I, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I know now, but I didn't know then. And so, you know, I hired someone initially, and he, he I didn't understand the difference between kind of a, a graphic or a designer and a, someone who could actually build something. Like, one, you can, you can sketch all day long, and, and the second, you have to have sewing machines and fabric and stuff. The second was more interesting, but I forgot to ask those questions of the first guy. So I worked with him for a bit. And eventually realized that, okay, after, even if I approve these drawings, which I didn't, then there's no way to kind of actually build this. You're going to go find someone. It was kind of not meant to be on that front. But the, the second one was I, I placed an ad in Craigslist, New York City for a quote backpack designer. Because there's all sorts of fashion schools in New York. It's, it's kind of like the capital of the universe. So I was like, well, if it's going to, if there's one place to do it and I'm living here, right. right? That, that makes a lot of sense. And then there was this cop, this couple that was out West and they were by, by their own admission, trolling all sorts of places to, to find work. And, and so that was one of the places they were trolling. Why? Because New York city is the capital of the universe. So, you know, they had just been let go from their, their backpack designer job down in New Zealand because, Oh yeah. You know, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, was far from over so the economy sucked and you know that that leads to the ability to find great people who otherwise would be leading productive and fruitful lives so to say but you know that's kind of the same situation that we're in right now on, on the, the heels of all the, the COVID yeah. stuff and a lot of layoffs and there's a lot of people out there looking to find meaningful work so you know is it a good time to start a company like yeah I think it probably is you know you have to a plan and have something saved up but but uh anyway yeah so those are those are kind of the the two stories what, what was the next the follow-on after that yeah so just in noticing i i believe it was a, another blog post the uh i think it was right around 2300 percent growth from 2010 to 2011 what sparked that and how did you kind of continue that momentum and uh not get i guess uh, destroyed by that amount of growth in subsequent years how were you able to keep up with it yeah well i mean it's all relative right i mean it's, it's sure. relative to, to 2010 which was fifty three thousand dollars. so right you know um i mean you know our first revenue didn't was you know summer of 2010 and it was scant and then we we started out and, and the go Rock challenge started september 25th 2010 and okay. we only we was me at that time uh, only led seven of those that year in 2010. And then I, I forget how many we did the next year, but it was a huge multiple of that, at least a hundred, right? And and so, you know, there was also kind of attached to the gear and we had the gear and we had a website that could actually fulfill the gear. And it was kind of this fight club style secret back then. So it, it's not that hard, you know, if, if, if you make one dollar year one, you can grow a thousand percent pretty easily. <laughs> and year two with with not that much, now you don't even have to get that lucky. So 
for us, it was just kind of piecing those two together. And it was just focus, man. I mean, really, it was just leading a lot of go rough challenges and, and then having some, some gear that would, that, that people would buy for the challenge, but also just because they saw through the challenge or through testimonials that it was great gear. Jason, two quick, two quick questions just um, from a fellow entrepreneur that's thinking about hiring. In the position you're in, so you're living, you're living with a friend in New York trying to launch a business and you're putting ads in a, in a paper to hire, um, you know, presumably a talented uh, designer. How, how were you compensating that? Was that paid based on future sales? Was that you paying out of your own pocket? Was that, um, you know? Yeah, that was all deployment cash that I, you know, I didn't have any expenses and, and Em and I were still kind of together. So we, we collectively, I mean, she was deployed for three years. I was deployed for a, a bunch of times. So I just didn't have any expenses and that saved a little bit of money from, from that. And, you know, like without that, I probably would, I, I, it would have been too cumbersome for me. I, I didn't believe in the project enough to go raise debt or small business sure. loans or ask people for money. But for whatever reason, I was very comfortable putting a lot of my own, all of my own money into it. Mm-hmm. Up to and including hiring somebody to execute for you, which I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are willing to spend their own money on their, their time, um, their material, but paying somebody else out of your pocket, I think is really indicative of a vision you had. And so then when, when we think about that transition, what you just described is you're selling some packs and you're also, you know, facilitating an experience. Clearly, they're mutually beneficial, but did you have a specific, I mean, was that a strategic play where you said, I'm designing a pack, I want to sell a pack, I recognize I can sell it better through experiences, or was it truly, I mean, side-by-side in parallel initiatives? Well, the, the rucks came out May of 2010, and then I drove around to, to 48 states in the summer of 2010, trying to approach small men's retail shops and, and like places that could support higher price point with USA manufactured rucksacks. And, you know, I got kind of a lot of silence from the world. Hmm. So, you know, you can, you can hope that that, that silence turns around and eventually some of it does. And even a very little bit of it did, but you know, to me, it was just that I didn't really believe in that plan. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to own a backpack company, not interested. The world doesn't need another backpack company then. And it doesn't need another backpack company now. There's lots of plenty of backpacks out there, right? And and so for me, it was just I it's like I got to do something, and that just sort of ended up leading to to the Go Rough Challenge. And I didn't really think that the event side was going to be too much more than a way to gather pictures. That's in fact exactly what I thought it was going to be, mm-hmm. just kind of a, a way to bring people together and that you have something to talk about now. Which is, which is better than, you know, let me tell you what my stitch count is, comma, again, yeah. right? And so here's all the changes I made to this because it's a new season. Like, congratulations, you know? <laughs> uh, but for, for this, this was about people mm-hmm. in the real world doing real cool stuff together. And that was, that was the goal. So, you know, it was, uh, that was, that immediately kind of stole my heart at Go Ruck, and it was about just kind of further pushing that along. And and the, I mean, again, I'm I'm comparing this to the experience, which is you know all that different from Go Ruck. Um, as you know, we we've, we've talked a little bit about our LDR leadership offerings, some of which include 
um, what we call epic team building, which is taking executive teams out and putting them through a series of events, um, you know, not dissimilar from a field leader reaction course, something like that that we all experience in the military. Um, and for us, I mean, one is just the process of, of exposing people to things that many have never done, but some have. But the, the part that was most impactful to us is when you finish together, the feeling that they had that you almost can't create in any other environment than a you know, super physically demanding team challenge. Um, so how much of, of that, I mean, the momentum that you built in the process, but also probably the response you got from this um, you know, incredible following that you've developed around why these, these participants you know, part of the, the GoRec family, continue to do this again and again and again. I mean, how much of that was the driving force behind growth of the business? I mean, I think it is the driving force. You know, I mean, we, we were pretty terrible at things like Facebook ads and, and Google keywords and stuff, but we're really good with bringing people together and, and building a community. So, you know, the community is, is, why, is why the community keeps growing. So, there's, I hear, I see a lot of these things out there about, you know, community this and community that. Like, first off, if it's online and you're calling it a community, it's not. It's a, it's a forum. Right. Okay, so, so check your words because community is has roots from hunter gatherer stage of of people coming together in the real world, right? You know, you don't treat people online. You don't treat people in the real world like you see people getting treated online when you're part of a quote community, right? So, you know, and, and it's really hard and it's really messy, but it's also really effective and it works. It's been proven over millennia that community building will work for whatever cause that you're a part of because you're aggressively attracting people by having other people bring more people into the community. And so, you know, I mean, sure, you have to build a business around that, but that's a lot better way to do it than build a, build a widget business and get really good at all this, you know, slick stuff and then, you know, hire a community manager to, to start a community or pretend that you have one because you have a, a Facebook page. I mean, get real, man. It's yeah. never going to work. Yeah, super interesting perspective there. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on an hour here, so don't want to take too much more of your time. I think we have two, two more, uh, potentially challenging questions, probably not challenging for you to, to respond to, but we'll, we'll toss a softball out there. Um, what I know JD was just talking about percentage of growth relative, uh, would you, would you accredit to events versus community, those sorts of conversations, but what percentage of your success personally, can you accredit to, uh, to Java um, to Java, your, your little doggo. Yeah. So, I mean, Java was what M and I, so you know, fast forward, M and I got divorced, eventually got back together and have a few kids at our house in, in, in Jack's Beach, Florida, a few miles from GORUCK headquarters. And we work together, all that stuff. Life, life's really good now, but Java was what we thought about when we were going through our divorce. And, and so, you know, he had lived with her for three years in Africa, but came home and then you know, my life circumstance was a little bit more conducive to, to have, I mean, to having Java. And so I ended up with Java more. We got really tight, you know, best friend, man only has a, you know, a 
backcountry song and his dog and a <laughs> bottle of whiskey. It was kind of like that, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, Java was kind of the, what got me out and being active again from, from a low point in my life. So, you know, dogs have to do things like go outside and they need a little bit of exercise and, and they love you unconditionally. And, and, you know, a community of two is still a community. Mm-hmm. By yourself is, is a really bad place to be when you're not in a good place. So I encourage everyone to get a dog. I think they're great. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like Java, you know, crunched the, the spreadsheet numbers and solved all the problems, but, you know, he was certainly just super loyal and, and um, I really love that dog. So at a, at a time when I needed something to love or someone to love and for, to be loved back, that's, that's what Java was. So it was, it was more, it was more just, a confidence that came from just having Java around than, than anything more specific than that. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, so transitioning from that, and we just have two more questions and conversations here for you. Um, the next is around kind of hard decisions. Obviously, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as the business gets bigger, the decisions, there might not be more hard decisions, but the decisions impact potentially more people. Um, one decision in particular um, that I'm sure was not an easy decision for you and GoRuck to make was taking some of the production overseas. Um, and along with that has come the phrase, and I, I like this phrase, you're trying to build an elite product and an elite company, not elitism. So uh, if you could just talk to that a bit, um, I'd love to hear your words rather than just read, potentially reading something. Yeah, so, I mean, we had started out with almost exclusively U.S. manufacturing for you know, a, a long time, you know, from 2010 until last year. And, and exclusively on the rucksack side and, and on the apparel side, right? Now, we started out with footwear, and footwear is performance footwear, if you will, which ours needed to be, you can't really do that in America. Like, maybe you can, but we can't, if, if that makes sense, at, at our size. And nobody wants, wanted to, long story short, is we, we hired, uh, he was on our board already, but we, we brought on the guy who invented the Reebok pump to build us a pair of, of boots for rucking, right? His name's Paul Litchfield, dear friend of mine. What's up, Paul? And, <laughs> So that exposed us to what overseas manufacturing looks like. And when you hear that phrase, overseas manufacturing, you know, you think of sweatshops that, that you know, were this huge mark on Nike and, and all this. Stuff. And overseas manufacturing, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I know a guy named Bill in California. Do you know him too? There's lots of Bills, right? They're, they're different people. And, and there's lots of different ways to do overseas manufacturing. So, you know, we did get some exposure to, to a rucksack manufacturer that, that was overseas. We, we saw their facilities. It, this took time. This took a long time, years. And, you know, the state of manufacturing is, is messy, okay? The, the volume plays and the skill sets overwhelmingly are overseas. Now, American craftsmanship is very much a thing. But when you start to get into any kind of real scale, what, what you really need are, are greater capital investments, right? The machinery is better, the patterns are cut cleaner, 
the there's just better machines doing more of the work. And what's going to happen in the future is the machines are going to do even more of the work, no matter where stuff is built. So American manufacturing will absolutely come back. It's just not going to be rows and rows of sewers. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. The economics don't work. And so what, when you start to see what happens is that the U.S. manufacturers, because the labor is so expensive, they it's like the chicken or the egg. They can't. Right. invest millions of dollars in capital infrastructure on huge cut and sew, you know, efficiencies, even though it would make the labor side a little bit less right. because the labor is still so much more expensive. I mean, you're looking at a factor of three, four, or five yeah. of, of the, the, the cost differential and, and what it costs here over there. And I'm not going to say that things are better overseas i'm just going to say that there is greater capital investment that will set certain 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 parts of the process are absolutely more conducive to higher quality if you have perfectly cut patterns by a laser that is always better than someone cutting them with scissors now i i say that you know i'm a guy that loves american manufacturing and we still do a lot of it we, we do more manufacturing now than we did in our first five or six years combined, you know? And, and, and so it was one of those things where the industry itself is also, when costs go up 38% over the span of not that long, right? I mean, what's going to happen in another decade? At, w- at what point are we trying to sell $500 rucksacks that are made in USA at an entry level price because it just keeps going up and up because you know people don't want to sew here the only people who and this this is just like the the ground truth right the 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 only people that I've ever seen that are sewing in a, in a scale manufacturing shop an american scale manufacturing shop are all immigrants mm-hmm. there's there's mexicans typically mexican americans in, in Southern California, there's Vietnamese in, say, Seattle. There was uh, a lot of Mexicans in, in the Denver, Colorado area as well. And, and I say this with love and reverence for the American dream. And, and I believe in people who want to work hard, we need to empower them to work hard, to make a difference in, in their lives and so that they can provide you know, a meaningful, self-fulfilling life for, for themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. The economics are, are just a little bit different. Yeah. Once you once you get into kind of more scale, it just, the cost side is, is, is difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we have some things that we can, we can kind of double down on, Hey, this is made in America. And, and it's, it's great. We'll talk about the craftsmanship and we'll, and we'll talk about that. But when you start getting into fitness gear, I mean, and GORUCK is kind of a complicated piece like this. And I, I say it, like, it's kind of just who we are, but it's not necessarily always good in that we have events and fitness and manufacturing. And that's that's a lot. And in the fitness space, there is not one single place that, that does entirely U.S. manufacturing of, of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's, there's like, if you look at Rogue Fitness, they do a lot of steel, the steel stuffs in America. They sell a ton of apparel. They screen print on American apparel tees. But, you know, I mean, yeah. there's lots of others. Like the soft goods side, I mean, 
it's just as we build and expand out rucking and training and stuff to, to compete with anybody, it, it just it would kind of suck if we built that out and then someone comes up and, and knocks us off entirely, which is already kind of happening around the edges. Mm-hmm. And they're able to come out and say, "This is this is an awesome product. It's made overseas and it's a third the price." Yeah. You know, and so so this diversification of, of manufacturing, you know, it's it's also kind of a it's like allows us to be more adaptable. Mm-hmm. And so as we look at what, what the ramifications were, and, and, and by the way, this is a messy answer because it's a messy situation. No, totally, there, yeah, there's, totally. there's not some clear cut, oh, well, you know, you should just keep everything here and keep the prices up and, and forget about the people who, you know, if they can't afford it, tell them to save up. And I have respect for that answer, by the way. The other part of me says, though, that we want to put, people before things Mm -hmm. so wanting to encourage people to get out and be active together if if they need your type of equipment to do that then they need to be able to roughly afford it when you start to say 400 500 quote quote backpacks or rucksacks is kind of the entry point i mean it just i I didn't feel that good about that right now if if there's a diversification we can also build a a, a better stronger business around that Mm -hmm. and so you know, and, and then when you start to look at COVID, I mean, the adaptability that we had because we had this dual stream manufacturing source was vital mm-hmm. because American manufacturers pivoted. First off, a lot of them kind of stopped working or slowed down significantly. Um, you know, I'm not here to say that they should have or should not have. I think we should do what's healthiest for our people. But that was would have been a, a kind of a, a big challenge for us. And second is, is, second off is, once they got back into it, they started focusing on PPE and stuff. So then you're kind of at the back of the line and you can't get your stuff. Right. And, and then you're, you know, it's not built to scale. So when we needed 10,000 sandbags, we, we ordered training sandbags. We ordered them from our, our partner in, in Saigon and, you know, we have them in 90 days. Yeah. And they're great, and they come with a lifetime guarantee. Mm-hmm. And so it's this kind of messy, it's, it's messy, man. It's moving towards a world where it's going to be someone walking around the clipboard managing the robots, though. And, yeah. and that can happen. <laughs> That'll happen in America. It, it'll happen lots of places. Yeah. But it's, it's, just, it's in this, this kind of weird, this weird state right now. Yeah, very interesting to hear that perspective. I know anyone that's familiar with GoRuck uh, and has followed it has, has, is familiar with that. So if there's anyone listening that hasn't had a chance to hear Jason kind of talk through that, a, a great chance um, just now to kind of hear that, that conversation and what really went on in his mind and um, his direction for the company. Uh, last question here. The, the concept of this podcast is really uh, to highlight individuals that are kind of the everyday high performer. You started to mention living out the American dream for certain individuals. And I think there's an aspect of that that we're trying to highlight in the individuals that we have on as guests. Um, and I see this twofold in you. First, first when you were, were starting GoRuck, um, obviously having enough wherewithal and enough passion to build it to what it's become today. But I think what might be a more interesting conversation to have is to ask you, what is it about yourself and your drive? What drives you? How do you um, manage your days? Um, And what inspires you to make sure that you're not comfortable with 
where GORUCK is currently as a business, which objectively it's, it's done very well and it's, it's a successful business. But what drives you to continue to take it to the next step uh, and to continue to see growth in GORUCK? I mean, I, I really enjoy working with our team here and, and I believe in our mission. And so, you know, the kind of intangibles of me as a person, I mean, I think you're, it's a little bit of nature, it's, it's a lot of nurture. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just, I believe in, I believe in a way of life that is, is not necessarily at the forefront of people's consciousness right now. And that's, that's more connected in the real world. It's, it's stronger communities. It's, it's being more active together. It's, it's enjoying, you know, a lot of, of moments that are not worth publishing or, you know, sharing online because you're just too busy enjoying them with people that you want to spend time with. It's, it's some of the, the moments in between when you're just actually connected to someone else, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's outside with a rucksack on. Sometimes it's, you know, drinking cold beers in your, in your front yard. And so, you know, building stronger communities and stronger, more connected people that are, that, that don't ask for an easier life all the time. Right. There's a lot of people looking for silver bullets and they don't exist. And so trying to, trying to show people a different way to say, you, you have to earn, things in life. Nothing is just for sale. You can't buy happiness on Amazon. Sorry. Yeah. You know, and, and like the best thing we can do is, is kind of leave from the front and live life the way that we get the most out of it. And, and we are. And so kind of building a business around that, you know, the outcomes a little bit be damned, right? I mean, we want, we want more people to, to, to live like this because it's better. It'd be better mm-hmm. for them. It would be better for our country, be better for the world. But, you know, this is a free country. People get to do, people get to do as they want. And we just want to leave from the front and show people that, that this is a, this is a good alternative. Yeah. Couldn't agree with that more. I think, I think it's a, a great thing for, for everyone to hear if possible. Um, before we let you go, I'd be remiss not to mention to the audience that we have and anyone that might be listening to this, that uh, Jason is coming out with a book. Jason, when's it slated to, to be available for purchase? Well, it'll be on the GORUCK site. It's on the GORUCK site now. Okay. Um, already done a, a round of pre-orders and stuff, and it'll it'll be on Amazon in a couple weeks. So, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's basically about the early days of GORUCK, not a lot of veneer to it. And driving around to 48 states with my dog. Yeah, it's awesome. No, I, people, as, as soon as we can get our hands on it, we will for sure. Um, Jason, it's been a, a real pleasure having you on and, and talking to you today. Obviously, a lot of the things that we talked about were things about you that, that I did not know, and I'm sure JD can echo the same sentiment. So uh, thank you again. And, and if uh, there's anything that you'd like to leave the audience with, I'll, I'll give it to you. But I, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today and talk with the audience. Cool, man. I mean, I've said almost, almost everything. <laughs> last three words, embrace the suck, man. You know, yeah, there you go. it's like, just get out, go call a buddy up and say, Hey, want to go do something awesome? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of what we're about. And, and so, you know, the more people that do that, the better. That's right. Awesome. We'll really appreciate it, Jason. Nice Enjoy the rest of your day. Jason. Yeah. We'll, we'll do this again in person sometime, hopefully soon. Cool guys. Later. Have a good one. Awesome. Take care. Take care. Thanks again. Smoke talk, no conversation that look makes
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Moose Talk. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jason McCarthy, founder and CEO of GORUCK, as much as JD and I did. On the next episode, we will have our second guest, Dr. Chelsea Kirk. Dr. Kirk is the director and principal of the Goodwill Excel Center, an adult charter school located here in Washington, D.C. Excited to have Dr. Kirk on and to uh, have a great conversation with her. If there is anyone else that you think should be nominated to be a guest on the Moose Talk podcast, uh, please let us know. Send us a message on Instagram at MooseFit. If you're interested in learning any more about the guests that we have on our show or about MooseFit in general, please visit our website at www.moosefit.co or check us out on Instagram. Our handle is at MooseFit.